And adults, if you're staying out here with us, if you can take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 24, we will be looking at that initially, and then we'll see how we, how we do today. There's a lot to cover today as we continue to consider the threefold office of Christ as He is our prophet, as He is our priest, and He is our King. And again, we are spending time looking specifically at the kingly office. And so before we go any further, let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer. Father, We've sung that Christ is fairer than anything else that exists. That He is the one who is the ruler of all nations. That He is Son of God and Son of Man. And Father, He is the only one who can bring redemption and salvation to His people. He is the only one in whom we can find hope. And Father, I pray that today that we would continue to live a life that is submissive to our Lord and our King. Father, that His kingship would be evident in our lives, that we would be changed and transformed more to be like our King in every aspect of our lives. And may we be encouraged, Father, that all the failures that we see from human rulers, from human kings, Christ has none of them. He is our great hope. Father, drive that hope home to us this evening as we look to your word. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we spent some time last week uh, exploring and discussing, in particular, um, Israel's need for a king. And in particular, what we have been seeing is that there's not just a need for a king, there's a need for a perfect king. And we looked at in the law, as, as Moses gave the law to Israel, he provided specific instructions for Israel's future kings. And I think it's interesting to note there that, that God was already planning to have a king over Israel. In fact, in the prophecies given to, uh, by Jacob to Judah, the scepter would not depart from Judah. There would always be a king for Israel. So it was God's plan from the beginning for there to be a king. But yet we also saw that in the law, Moses gave specific limitations on those kings, that the human kings that would eventually arise among God's people were to be people who were dependent on Yahweh, the Lord's ultimate reign, and then were dependent on Yahweh's law. And so they lived in submission to God's reign, and they lived in submission to God's law. At least that was what was required for them. In fact, the king, one of the first things a king was supposed to do was to take the law of Moses and to copy it into his own book of the law. So Israel sets out, and they, we know um, we're fast-forwarding a little bit through the history of Israel. They set out and to go into the promised land. We know that Moses is taken off of the scene because of his act of rebellion. Um, he dies Joshua is raised up to be the leader who leads Israel into the conquest of Canaan. And they go in and and they have some successes, they have some failures, but they are able to essentially get the bulk of what God had promised them to do. And what we find is that what, what we see happening after they enter the promised land is there's rebellion against 
Yahweh's reign. Now again, remember that Moses had conceived of Israel living underneath what we call a theocracy. That there would be no visible human king, at least at this point in their in their history, but rather that they were to live as a nation under the reign of God, directly underneath the reign of God. He was to be their ultimate king. But what we actually find as we look at the history, we see what Israel does is they push back, they fight against, they do not submit themselves to the reign of Yahweh. And so as Israel has gone in and they have made some advances, but they haven't done everything they are supposed to do, Joshua now is coming to a point where he's nearing his death. And as Joshua nears his death, it is interesting to note, he does not appoint a successor, and he does not appoint a king. Rather, he charges Israel as a people, he charges the twelve tribes themselves to govern themselves, govern themselves according to God's law, and then to finish the work of driving out the nation. So essentially, each individual tribe is responsible to submitting to and living under the kingship of Yahweh directly. We actually see this charge in the last chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. And if we look with me in verse 14, now just to quickly give you the, the, the background, what has happened is Joshua is soon to die and he gathers the people of Israel at Shechem. Now, Shechem, in particularly among Israel's history, is an important city. It was there where Abraham first found rest under a great oak, and it is the oak of Morah. And it's underneath that oak that God provided for him, and that oak was there even to this day. So there is a, a line of succession from what Abraham had done to what Israel is now doing. God is giving Israel the land. What's interesting to note as well is that Shechem is sort of smack dab in the middle of Israel. And so it is essentially this this recognition, this demonstration that when God brought Abraham to Shechem and said, I'm going to give you this land, now here is Israel as a nation with God as their king inhabiting the land. And so Joshua is about to die. He's about to come off of the scene and he charges Israel there at Shechem with a very solemn oath. So look with me, Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, and we'll read through verse 28. After all of Israel is gathered there, Joshua charges them, Now therefore, fear the Lord, fear Yahweh, and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Just a quick note, it is amazing to see how often throughout the Scriptures, God is not just concerned with our actions, He's concerned with our hearts. The call here is for sincere obedience to God's law. Not just going through the motions, not just doing the activities, not just being faithful on an exterior standpoint, but being faithful from the heart. What does that look like? Well, it looks like, first of all, putting away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. Serve the Lord. He is your king. And then he brings up this statement. He's essentially putting a choice before them. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. What an interesting way of putting the charge to Israel. And it it really brings about 
what it means to rebel against God. To rebel against God means that we think living underneath His reign is evil. That we would turn aside and away from it. To push back and rebel against that reign is to consider God Himself to be evil. Now that's going to become important when we look at what happens in the next book, in the book of Judges. Because Israel gets to a point where they no longer determine good and evil based upon what God has revealed, but everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. So if it is evil in your eyes to serve this Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. And essentially Joshua says, whether you're going to serve the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then we have the verse that likely every house has on a plaque somewhere. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Just a quick note, what that means, what he's calling Israel to do and what Joshua is exemplifying is full submission to the kingship of God. He is the ruler. So I think it's great to put those plaques in your houses. It's great to remind yourself of that, but realize what you're stating. If you're stating that this house is a house that serves the Lord, then you're stating that God is the ultimate king. And so we see the response of the people. Verse 16, Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who live in the land. Therefore, we will serve Yahweh, will serve the Lord. He is our God. So they are committing as a nation to live underneath the kingship of Yahweh. And then Joshua comes to these people. Now remember, remember these people and the way that they've responded in the past. The way that they responded to Moses, complaining and griping, wanting to go back to Egypt. The way that they would not listen and, and follow through with Joshua's instructions completely. That there would be great defeats even in their midst, because of their forsaking of God. And so Joshua says, this is great. There's this revival, there's this resolve, there's this great hope that they're saying, we're going to serve God. But then notice what Joshua points them to in verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Wow. Think about what Joshua says there. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. We, We love the forgiveness that God gives us in Christ, and it is a joyous thing to think of those things. But I also think of the same warnings issued to God's people that we looked at in Hebrews, that if we persist in sin after knowing the truth what does the writer of hebrews tell us there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins and the point he's saying is that if you live like you don't have that forgiveness then you don't you've never had it in the first place 
And so Joshua, knowing the history of Israel, knowing their continued rebellion, says, look, this isn't just a, a party and a, and a you know, prep rally and we say, oh, this is what we're going to do and then go about your business as though you lived like you did before. You can't do this. You rebel against God. He's not going to forgive your sins. He goes on in verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, not only will God not forgive your sins, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. What a warning. And so the people hearing this stark warning from Joshua, they respond. Verse 21, And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua says to the people, "All right, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And then they said, We are witnesses. Now, again, has Joshua not charged Israel very seriously about what they're entering into? And knowing what happens in Israel's history, what what this shows us and what it displays is the immense mercy and grace and long-suffering of God towards His rebellious people. He says, know what you're getting yourselves into. And so Joshua says, okay, He says, then put away the foreign gods, verse 23, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to Yahweh, to the Lord, the God of Israel. It is amazing here how he puts up this contrast between the gods of the nations and the true God of Israel. And he's saying, don't have anything to do with the gods of these other nations. Serve the Lord alone. In verse 24, And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. So here they are. We will live underneath the kingship of our God. Yahweh is going to be our king. What He says, we will obey. And so Joshua made a, verse 25, Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statues and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up under the terebinth, or the the other term for terebinth is oak. This is the very tree that Abraham found refuge under. So there is a connection with the promises of God in Abraham with what Israel is committing to do as a nation here. And what Joshua does is he adds to that a stone so that anyone who would be traveling through Shechem would see this oak that was well known. The oak where Abraham rested and found refuge. And there they would, as they passed that oak, not only would they be reminded of God's promises to Abraham, the stone would remind them of their promise to God. And Joshua, verse 27, said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us 
For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So essentially, Joshua solemnly charges Israel, choose this day who you'll serve. I'm, I and my house are serving the Lord. Israel responds, we all will serve the Lord. And Yahweh is to be the one who is to continue leading them into victory. They're to go to their inheritance. And there is a charge here. They haven't taken everything yet. There's more for them to win. There's more for them to conquer. And it is to be their submission to King Yahweh that's going to bring about this victory for them. Now, that's the end of Joshua. We have a little bit more here that talks about his death. And then we come to the next book in the Hebrew Scriptures, the book of Judges. When you think of books in the Scriptures, when you think of the book of Judges, what comes to your mind? Is it a, is it a book that, yeah, thumbs down. All right, Israel, how, how do they do with the great revival commitment that they gave here? They what? Everyone does what was right, not according to what their king had said, but what was right in their own eyes. And it begins very early on. What we see is there's such great hope at the end of Joshua, but Israel fails to heed the word of the Lord. What do they fail to do? Well, they do not drive out the inhabitants of Canaan from the land. They even make covenants with them And this provokes God to judgment. Remember what Joshua charged Israel with. God will not forgive you. God will turn and do you harm if you don't obey these commands. And so we come to Judges chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. And we see that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham. And he said... I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into this land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? The, the striking thing, if, you, if you're reading through the Old Testament Scriptures and, and you end with, with the end of Joshua when you think, all right, Israel's going to jump on board, and then you're two chapters. At the very beginning of the second chapter, Israel's already t- fallen flat on their face and turned back on their promises. And so God, the angel of the Lord says, what is this you have done? The reader would be like, what is wrong with you, Israel? So now I say, and this is where Israel begins to have problems for generations because of their failure to obey the Lord. If they had obeyed, God would have driven out all of those nations. But because they persisted in rebellion, God says, I will not drive them out before you. And they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. 
As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. God brings severe judgment upon them. And in fact, as you look through the rest of Israel's history, these nations that continued to persist in the promised land, they were nothing but problems for Israel. The Philistines, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. Constant thorns in the side of Israel. And it's because they rejected Yahweh as their king. They rejected living underneath him. And so what we end up seeing in the book of Judges is a cycle. And it's really more like a spiral. And it's not a spiral that goes up. It's a spiral that spirals down. Where we see a cycle of rebellion, of God bringing discipline, of repentance from Israel, and then deliverance from whatever the discipline was that God had brought in, which most likely would have been a nation that was causing problems to them. And so there would be this, this continued cycle. Rebellion, God disciplines, they repent, He delivers them, and then what do they start doing very soon after that? Rebellion again. Discipline, repentance, and then deliverance. And what we find is that during this time, no king is given by God. He is still ruling and reigning as the king of his people. However, he does raise up judges who are used to provide military victory and deliverance for Israel. But even those judges soon fall very far, far short of what they're called to do. What we find is that Israel's persistent rebellion leads to a downward cycle in both the shameless acts of rebellion and even the quality and character of the judges that God sends to deliver them. So just a quickle, quick, a quickle. That's a, that's a fun word, a quickle. I'm going to do a quickle. I don't do everything quickle. Anyways, um, sorry, that struck me strange. All right. That's, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get past that now. I'm just going to have quickle on my mind. All right. What was I even saying? Um, a quick overview. We're going to do a quickle of the book of Judges. A quick overview of the book of Judges. Judges begins with great hope in those judges. Othniel is the first judge that comes, and he's presented as an ideal judge. He's a judge who fears the Lord and seeks to live for Him. But after that, it's all downhill from there. From there, the judges end up using deception. They falter in their faith. We think of some of the names uh, that you think of in the book of Judges that maybe you're more familiar with. So, um, and it's, in- it's interesting. Othniel is sort of the ideal judge, but we don't really think about him that much, do we? Who do you think of in the book of Judges? Samson. Gideon. How did Samson do? Well, we know Samson was used by God to bring deliverance, but we also know he was a bit of a scoundrel. Not just a bit of a scoundrel. He was full-blown scoundrel. What about Gideon? I mean, we, we, we think about Gideon, and that seems to be one of the more positive aspects. And Certainly, there's some truth to that. Gideon does bring about victory. He trusts in the Lord. But as we come to the end of Gideon's life, it ends up with Israel ending up in idolatry because he sets up um, a, a, uh, 
some sort of idolatrous um, work. And Israel starts worshiping other gods through what Gideon has set up. One that is maybe a little bit lesser known, but the story is enough. Enough that it actually impacted the old bard of England, William Shakespeare, in his, his play Hamlet, he references Jephthah. And Jephthah is a judge who makes a rash vow saying that he was going to sacrifice the next thing that came through the gates to his house. And guess what the next thing that came through the gates to his house was? His daughter. And so we look at these kings, or these judges, and over and over again we see that God is seeking to rule and reign over his people, but even those vice regents, even those that he has set up as these these with authority as judges to rule over Israel and to mitigate or to, to administer that rule, their character is suspect. And so while Israel is delivered by, this judge, by these judges, this period of Israel's history reflects both the need for God's, God's appointed king and the failure of seeking kings like the rest of of the nations around them. The book of Judges does not end well. Unfortunately, the book of Judges ends very much like a tabloid that you would read today. What we find is that it ends up with pretty much the complete collapse of Israel society. So, again, it's one of the things that's nice about doing these 30,000-foot overviews of, of God's Word is that we're able to see the change that so greatly happens from Israel entering the promised land, the Lord we're going to serve, to now the nation almost tearing itself apart. This collapse is marked by unthinkable lawlessness. What you have is... A terrible abuse of a Levite's concubine. So much so that she dies. And this Levite caring so little for her that he takes her and he's not upset about how she was treated. Rather, he's upset about the slight against himself. And so he takes her and cuts her up into pieces and sends her through the entire nation. And so... This is what is done by the Benjaminites. This is the tribe of Benjamin that this happens to. And so when Israel sees their piece of this concubine come through, they are enraged at Benjamin. And so all the tribes rise up and they begin to wage war against Benjamin. It's not lawless or it's not lawful at all. It's complete lawlessness. It's mob rule. There's a lynching group going out to cut Benjamin off. And it's Mark, and I think the thing that is amazing to note here is Israel's society collapses as they, they end up in civil war. And God is merciful to them in that this he does not allow this civil war to tear them apart. But what we find, what we find is that this collapse is marked not by the threats of the Philistines or the Amorites, or the Hittites. Israel doesn't almost go into civil war or crumble completely because of what these nations have done outwardly. Rather, it's from within. 
Their own rebellion and inner corruption brings about this terrible end to the book of Judges. And so if, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to me to the last, the last verse in the book of Judges, what is all this setting us up to recognize? Well, notice the commentary that we see here. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I think the commentary here is not just that there was no, there was no human king among Israel, but rather that they had rejected Yahweh completely as their king. They had no king. How very like our society is this commentary, is it not? Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. Everyone seeks to live with radical autonomy, casting off any type of, of thought that they would have to live underneath the rule of the Lord. There's much we can learn as God's people when we look at the book of Judges. There's warning. Don't make rash, brash oaths. No matter how hyped up in your emotion that you may be, and you should seek to commit yourself to the Lord, but notice what happens to Israel. I think it's also a reminder to us, as Joshua warned them, you're saying that you want to serve the Lord? You can't do it. If we are seeking to live our lives before the Lord in our own strength, we will only ever fail. We need, we desperately need the grace of God. And then finally, we need to recognize that we have to bow our knees to Yahweh as our King. The Lord must rule over every aspect of our lives. We cannot hold out an area where we worship anyone else but Him. There's many other lessons to learn from the book of Judges, but that great overview is very instructive for us. This is a book that, that we should not neglect. We should be coming to the book of Judges often because it is, it is very much a window into the darkness of the hearts of God's own people. And it's convicting for us to read these things. So as we finish up the book of Judges, there's the wonderful redemptive story of Ruth, and we're not going to touch on that. But then we come to 1 Samuel. And unfortunately, what we see at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, which is a book of great hope, but it begins with Israel still mired in the sins of their rebellion. And what we find is Israel now, instead of just rebelling against God's reign, we see them full-on rejecting Yahweh as their king. The scene that is set at the very beginning is Israel as a barren land. By the time of the last true judge, which is Samuel, 
Israel is a spiritually barren land. We find corruption in the priesthood. What we end up finding is that that, uh, Eli's sons were exploiting the sacrifice for their own benefit. They were involved in all level of, of, um, of sexual sins in the temple. And when their father came to them and rebuked them for what they were doing, they said, oh, the old man doesn't know what he's talking about. We find that at this time, so this is, these are the priests. These are the ones who are leading Israel in worship. They are serving before the Lord in the tabernacle. There's also a famine for the Word of God in the land. What's remarkable and what's marked about what we see in 1 Samuel, and particularly about Samuel, is that as Samuel is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, um, the, the Lord comes to him. And, and the point that's made there is this is so remarkable because in that day, the word of the Lord was rare. There was no frequent vision. One of the ways that God often disciplines His people is by removing the influence of His Word. And we see that here with Israel. And then, of course, the book begins with Hannah. And Hannah's physical barrenness is a representation of Israel's barrenness. But what we see is God providing gracious hope for the barrenness of Israel through the gift of a son to Hannah. And who is that son? It is Samuel, the last judge of Israel. It's actually amazing to see the differences between Hannah and Elkanah, her husband, and their family in comparison to Eli, the high priest's family. His family is corrupt. Eli's not doing anything. He's sort of letting them live the the debauched life that they're living. And yet we see these commoners, these people who are just people in Israel. And Hannah is trusting the Lord for his promises. Hannah gives her only son away to God so that he would serve. I mean, what a contrast. In families. And so what we find is that it is through Samuel that God will now relate as king over Israel. Samuel takes his place as the last judge appointed by the Lord. Now, he's not the last and final judge. And what we find is that Samuel himself appoints judges. And we'll probably get there next week. But we find God again showing such grace to his people. When you come to the end of the book of Judges and you remember what Joshua warned, you would think that God is done with Israel, right? You would think that God would say, you know what, I can't can't deal with these people anymore. But he is still gracious. When when the Bible talks about God being long-suffering and having steadfast love, this is the demonstration of that. That a people who are so rebellious, God continues to bless them because they're His people. 
And that brings such hope for us as God's people. We all struggle with sin. We all fall on our faces daily. And yet God in Christ is always gracious. What a wonderful hope that we see demonstrated here. So we see now Samuel who takes the scene. And we're, again, we're sort of skipping over a lot of the story of Samuel. We all know the story. You know, God comes to Samuel as a boy as he's ministering in the temple. Hear my Lord. Listens to him. And he's, he's set by God to be the next judge. We'll fast forward a little bit. And we have a problem with Israel, particularly in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Well, we end up seeing, and in, in particularly in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines, is that Israel has grown so cold to the Lord that they did not even realize that their king had left them. It, it, essentially, what you have going on here is, imagine that, that you are an army and you're arrayed in, in battle, and, and you go into the king's tent say, to see that the king would lead you into battle, and he's not there. So what do you do? You pick up the tent and you say, the king's in here, and then you go forward. That's exactly what Israel does. We see in 1 Samuel 4 that they treated the ark as a trinket or a good luck charm. Essentially what had happened is the Philistines, which has been that thorn in their side, has been attacking them. And so they, they lost a battle. And they said, well, why... Why has the Lord defeated us? And they say, you know what? We need to bring the power of the Lord here. So they sent for the Ark of the Covenant. And they say, ah, if the Ark is here, then we'll be victorious. I mean, it had happened before. The Ark had come into the camp and God gave victory to Israel as the Ark came into the camp. So why would it be any different this time? The difference is God wasn't there. And so what we find is that as they bring the ark there, they go to battle with Israel or with the Philistines, and the Philistines fight and defeat Israel. It's amazing to see the, the interplay here. The, 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 the dullness and the blindness of Israel is palpable. When the ark comes into the camp, which Eli's sons have brought into the camp, they rouse up with great shouts of joy. They think that we're going to be victorious. I mean, the ark is there. It's so evident that they are energized by the ark being there that the Philistines hear it, and they say, in fear, a god has come into their camp. They say, woe to us. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? It's interesting that they mention Israel as being polytheistic, that they have multiple gods, which is maybe even a commentary on the fact that what have they already started to do? They worship Yahweh, but they worship Him along with other gods. And so the Philistines are, are looking at this military might, this military power, this energized army that's about to come after them, and they're scared And so they call each other to take courage, be men and fight. And so verse 10, we see God's absence clear in Israel's 
defeat. It says, for the, So for the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers fell of Israel. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. God was not with them. And so there's this, this end of this terrible scene where word comes to Phinehas' wife. And this corrupt priest has died. And she's in the pains of labor. Not just any labor. This is a labor that is going to take her life. She's giving birth and she's going to die. As, she's, as this is happening, a messenger comes from the battlefield and says, your husband is dead. At least at some point we think that they, they realize that she was not going to make it, that she's going to die as she gives birth. And so she gives birth, and as she gives birth, this child that's born, she names her son Ichabod. What does that mean, Ichabod? Well, if we see at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 4, she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. And again, her assessment was because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. Eli died. He fell backwards when he heard this story that his sons were killed. He fell, he fell backward, hit his head, and died. Now she is about to die. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Here's the reality. She's saying it, but it had been true for a long time that the glory had departed. They didn't even know their king wasn't among them. And so what Yahweh has done, Yahweh, who is Israel's king, leaves his fickle and rebellious people. So Samuel has these people to live. Thanks, Lord, right? You can imagine how he's thinking. What is his job? His job is not to coddle Israel and to say, there, there, I know this has been difficult for you. His job is not to, to try to explain away this victory. I mean, 30,000 of Israel's soldiers, men who had families, children who were left fatherless. I mean, they say, we just read 30,000 people, 30,000 men were killed, but the impact of that on this nation would have been immense. And truly, it is the fulfillment of what Joshua warned them about. God will turn, and He will do you harm. And so what is Samuel to do? He calls Israel to heartfelt Repentance. And we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 7. He calls Israel to heartfelt repentance. Look with me in 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to go ahead and read 
uh, the entire passage, and then we'll, we'll come back, and next week this is where we'll pick up. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to Yahweh and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Is he saying anything that Israel hasn't heard before? It's almost like Joshua wrote this. Or better yet, it's almost like one person wrote the message that both Joshua and Samuel are giving. This is God's message. He calls them to repent. And to not just repent outwardly, but to repent with all their hearts. To direct their heart to the Lord. So we see revival again. The people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth and they served the Lord only. Revival, repentance, hallelujah. And so Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when we typically think of the judges, we think of them bringing military deliverance. Gideon, for instance, leading an army. Samson breaking down the great um, hall that he's being mocked in. But the judges weren't truly focused on those outside of Israel They were focused on judging those inside of Israel. That was their primary goal, to call the people of Israel to repentance. Now again, the Philistines had come up. They're threatening Israel in verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound. The king is back. And he thundered against the Philistines, threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth And so what does Samuel do? Samuel took a stone. And set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. It is the sign of victory. When we sing that hymn, Here I raise my Ebenezer, that's what it is. God has helped us. So the Philistine were, Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. 
And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel. Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also there also he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. So Samuel calls Israel to repentance. We're going to look a little bit more closely at that next week. And then we're going to continue reading. In 1 Samuel, we come to chapter 8. Again, such hope in chapter 7. The king is back. Chapter 8 is another dark history, a dark chapter in the history of Israel. In fact, that's your homework this week. Read 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we will see, finally, Israel's full rejection of Yahweh as their king. I wonder if you can say here today that the Lord is your king. That he is truly the one you seek to live by and under. That you, you don't keep his statutes and his rules because you think that's going to somehow garner favor with him. But you keep them because he is your king and you love him. As we read and, and overviewed Israel's history throughout the time of the judges, do you not identify with Israel there? God gives us His Word to warn us and to call us to live for Him. May we truly heed what He's given here. May Jesus be your King as you walk out these doors and as you go through your Week this week. Ride on, King Jesus, in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the warnings that we see in Israel. Father, may we truly bow to King Jesus' reign in our lives. Father, thank you for your word that warns us of the folly of rejecting him as king or even not recognizing that the king is left. Father, may we examine our own hearts today. May we see ourselves joyfully serving the Lord alone and worshiping him alone. Father, we thank you that though we often fall into rebellion, because we are in Christ, we are forgiven fully. And that you provide grace upon grace to us. So, Lord, enable us, strengthen us, so that we would choose to follow you this day. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.